Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 7th, 2021. Welcome to Keenon on the LitHub Network. Uh, our goal is to bring you together, and this is being streamed on Twitter and other social media platforms. Unfortunately, though, social media doesn't seem to be bringing us together. Mm. It's polarizing us. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the big social media... CEOs of the platforms of YouTube and Facebook and Twitter were in Washington, D.C., quite literally being grilled by congressmen about the way in which social media uh, is, uh, is bringing us apart. Today, the headlines are still about how social media is undermining our unity. Uh, there's a headline about Facebook failing to recruit um, people from diverse backgrounds. Uh, uh, YouTube is once again the most popular social media platform, but unfortunately on YouTube, we have more and more examples of racism and extremism. Uh, and one of the more racist and extreme figures uh, in American politics, the MyPillow CEO, Mike Liddell, is claiming that he's launching his new social media platform, Frank, next week, which will certainly add to the polarizing quality of social media. So what's gone wrong? One guy who's spent a career looking at social media is my guest today on the show, uh, Chris Bale. He's the author of a really interesting and I think important new book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. Uh, Chris, I hope the social media platforms aren't interfering with us. I hope they're not going to destroy this interview as they've done a couple of times before. But in all seriousness, is social media by definition polarizing? Is that the conclusion of your new book? Well, you know, I think a lot of the prevailing public narratives, much as I'd like to believe them and, and they're seductive, when we turn to research and evidence to support them, um, I've been surprised what we find. Uh, so for example, to give one popular example, the concept of the echo chamber. Um, this is the idea that we all tend to surround ourselves with like-minded people um, and social media allows us to do that, of course, and insulate ourselves from opposing views. So one of the implications, of course, is you know if we could only step outside our echo chambers, we would become more moderate. And you know, in the Duke Polarization Lab that I lead, we wanted to test this idea. And so in 2017, we recruited a large group of Republicans and Democrats who use Twitter, and we asked them to complete a survey about their views. Then we invited half of them to follow bots that we created that exposed them to a broad range of views from the other side, uh, journalists, politicians, elected officials, and so on. Um, and then when we resurveyed them one month later, we were very surprised to find that the Republicans who followed the Democratic pot and the Democrats who followed the Republican bot did not become more moderate. In fact, and concerningly, they became more polarized. So to borrow one of your words, Chris, uh, you call this um, a tragedy that social media isn't bringing us together. It's actually dividing us. It's making us more extreme. You argue in the book that 
historically, the the great visionaries, the people who founded the internet, thought that social media would bring us together. But the reverse is true. Why is that? Why is social media, even though even founders like Zuckerberg, I mean, we can be critical of him, but he does want to bring us together. It, it, I think even Zuckerberg's biggest critic wouldn't think that he wants social media to polarize us. What? Why is it doing this? Much as we want social media to create a better competition of ideas, what it's really doing, our research indicates, is creating a competition of our identities. You know, I think we really have to ask what the human motivation is for using social media. And, and in the best case scenario, it's something like this. We go to social media, we present our views, they're challenged by others, and, and kind of magically, um, you know, rational debate emerges and the, and the best compromises occur. But that really doesn't square with what's going on. You know, any any anytime you spend time on social media, um, you know, you see uh, prevalent extremism. Um, you see people kind of antagonizing each other into the ether, even if they don't really feel like they have much hope of changing each other's mind. Research suggests most people um, don't change their mind because they see something on social media. And most people who are using social media don't think they're changing minds. So what are we doing? I think that's the important question to ask. I know you did your research. While there were a lot of very divisive issues going on, there were the, the Brett Kavanaugh trial, um, the Mueller report, uh, and the quote-unquote caravans, a word I think invented by Donald Trump at the border, which still seems to exist. But the more I think about your book and your research, it seems to suggest that these issues were always out there. We can't blame Brett Kavanaugh or the Mueller report or, or the crisis uh, on the Mexican-American border for these problems with social media. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the problem with social media is we focused so much on the platforms and what we can do through, say, reform and regulation. But the research indicates that most of the common explanations of what's going on, things like echo chambers, things like foreign misinformation campaigns, or maybe if you like, uh, algorithms that radicalize us. There's very little evidence in the research to support any of any of these ideas. And instead, what we're seeing is really strong evidence that it's us. It's the social media users themselves that are contributing to polarization from the bottom up. And so what I think we need to do is understand the human motivations for polarizing behavior. Um, we're not going on social media to engage in a better competition of ideas, our research indicates. Instead, we're going on social media to do something that is all too human. We each day, knowingly or unknowingly, present different versions of ourselves on social media, observe how other people react using powerful new tools like you know, follower accounts and, and like buttons. And then we tend to cultivate the identities that really make us feel good about ourselves, that give us a sense of status. Now, of course, you know, we, even though we'd like to use social media as a mirror and kind of you know, use it to, to understand ourselves and each other. In the book, I introduced this term, the social media prism, to capture the reality, which is that, of course, of course, social media distorts our understanding of ourselves and each other. Uh, it fuels status-seeking extremists, and it makes moderates seem all but invisible. But I want to come back to this image and metaphor of the prism, because I think it's the, the core of your book. But you suggested that uh, the internet makes us all too human. Uh, following up on that in a, in a kind of uh, Nietzschean sense, is it, Chris, a struggle for power, the internet? Is that what it's all about? 
I personally would call it a struggle for status, and certainly with status comes power. But if we think about the motivations of people, let me give you an example from my book. Um, you know, in, in, in one of our um, interviews, we encountered a guy named Ray. Now, Ray is a extraordinarily polite, special person when you meet him. Um, he goes out of his way to say how he avoids discussing polarizing issues, that he decries racism, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, Ray has very conservative views. Um, but online, he turns into Dr. Jekyll, you know, turns into Mr. Hyde from Dr. Jekyll. Um, he's one of the most prolific and vile on Twitter. And that's coming from someone who's been studying this stuff for a decade. Um, so the really interesting question is what motivates something, somebody like Ray um, to be, you know, a, a kind of seemingly, you know, um, fine social media day and transform to one of the most militant trolls on the internet. And what we discovered, the more we got to know, is that, that Ray is in fact a social outcast. Um, he has conservative views, but lives in a liberal city and works mm. in a liberal profession. And for him, social media has become kind of a refuge where he's created a kind of micro celebrity. And though even though many of the rest of us might not appreciate it, for Ray, it really gives him a powerful sense of status. Um, and, and yes, some power mentioned uh, Nietzsche, not to drop names, but maybe social media is Dostoevsky. And uh, it sounds like characters like Ray could have walked out of notes from the underground. You're suggesting then that social media attracts these angry people, these people who feel they are discarded, left out, losing identity, whether they're on the left and the right. I assume uh, Chris, this is not just a critique of, of, of white nationalism. We've had a number of shows about that, that the same exists on the left. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, you know, th these are complex issues. And I, I, I would hate to kind of both sides this or, or, or create false equivalences. There are really, you know, disturbing developments uh, related to white nationalism in this country. That, that there's no doubt. But I think the bigger issue, um, and, and one that we don't hear enough about, is, is moderation, boosting moderation. You know, we put so much of our effort at the extreme parts of the continuum, trying to stamp out people who are really engaged, you know, who are just uh, extreme and, and difficult people. What if we kind of instead put our influence and, and efforts into boosting moderate behavior? Uh, into boosting behavior and, and messaging on social media that seems to resonate across social divides. And I'm not divides. convinced. We'll, we'll get to your fixes, Chris. I'm not convinced sure. that asking Dostoevsky and characters like Ray to behave themselves and be more moderate and listen to other people is going to work. But let's come back to the book, which I think is excellent. It, it's called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. And this idea of breaking or smashing uh, the prism is, is core to the book. What is, what, why, why have you chosen the word prism, Chris, as, as, as the central metaphor in the book? How, how is social media prismatic? The problem is that we misunderstand extremists on the, under, on the other side as representative of the other side. And in so doing, we all feel more polarized than we really are. So let's look at Twitter. 73% of tweets about politics are made by just 6% of Twitter users. Characters like Ray, in other words. Characters like Ray. And it won't surprise you to learn that those people have disproportionately extreme views. Meanwhile, moderate people, and, and most people, never post about politics. And so what we're seeing is a prism-like refraction 
of the political landscape that distorts our entire understanding of what's going on in politics. And so, you know, just as the prism fuels status-seeking extremists like Ray, um, it's also muting moderates. And that's maybe one of its deeper and more pernicious effects. As if this isn't bad enough news, Chris, you report that things have got particularly worse in the COVID-19 era, which we're still in. You're in uh, uh, Durham, uh, North Carolina. I'm in uh, San Francisco. We're all stuck inside. Why is COVID, why has COVID made the crisis of social media even more acute? Look, I think many of us were looking at COVID as the perfect common enemy. You know, um, it was something that could potentially unite Republicans and Democrats. And certainly in the early days of the pandemic, you know, we did see some coordinated behavior. We saw a lot of social distancing. Sure, we bickered about, you know, um, issues at the margins, but there was a lot of consensus. And over time, what we saw was, unfortunately, the social media prism hard at work, you know, we weren't seeing each other, you know, um, making sacrifices for each other or caring about, you know, job losses. <clears throat> what we were seeing instead was the most extreme parts of the continuum refracted. You know, liberals were seeing conspiracy theories about uh, China's role in, in, in creating the, the virus in a lab. <clears throat> and, you know, on the other side, um, you know, Democrats weren't seeing Republicans who were, you know, carefully social distancing. Um, but still really concerned about uh, the economic effects of the crisis. And of course, you know, that had disastrous effects. So, so the COVID crisis really did, um, I think, show uh, the, the, the social media prism and, and all its power. Well, the good news is that Chris Bale, who's an expert in social media, hasn't actually given up on social media. You talk about my old friend, Jaron Lanier, my old Berkeley a uh, neighbor and a, a wonderful writer and thinker on social media. Uh, Lanier, of course, has advised us, he's been on our show several times, to give social media up. But Chris Bale and uh, his people at the Polarization Lab at Duke University uh, don't share uh, Jerron's pessimism. What they're calling for is a new kind of platform. What kind of platform... Uh, Chris, do we need now? Now, I don't want to sound naive. You know, the graveyard of social media is littered with a lot of failed examples of platforms. Um, so I would never say that, you know, um, all we need is a little optimism. But I would encourage you to think about the problem this way. Um, are we stuck with social media? I think the answer is yes. Um, I would love to say, you know, hey, let's all just get offline and, and you know, go bowling together or, you know, go for hikes together. And, and surely this is the way we'll finally, you know, repair the, the rifts that divide us. And I think, you know, there's even some evidence to support that, that line of thinking. The problem is, though, you know, look at young people. Um, you know, stunning numbers of young people are glued to their phones every day and they've grown up really with social media all around them. Um, even worse, um, you know, in the age of COVID, um, and even before COVID, um, Republicans and Democrats were living in places that were so segregated from each other that they very rarely encountered each other in, in um, offline settings. And so like it or not, and we could talk about a lot how, you know, we could talk a lot about how we might like to, to, to move political conversation offline. It's going to happen online. And it might be one of the few remaining places where genuine bipartisan compromise can happen. Um, so this is an Let's urgent problem. In, Chris, this bipartisan compromise, you run the polarization lab. It all sounds a bit social science-y. I know you think social science is the solution, 
But isn't it part of the problem, this idea of, of, of turning humans into scientific objects, that the notion of bipartisan consensus has always been a bit of a fiction? Well, I mean, I think, you know, social science is more important than ever. Um, you know, we are in a golden age of social science. And in this new book, um, you know, your, your viewers will see um, some of the power of social science. You know, we have, you know, whereas we used to just rely upon, you know, uh, a few surveys here and there, or a few interviews here and there, we can now map, you know, millions of people as they interact with each other at scale. And so we're deriving new insights. That hasn't about, actually made us agree we'll with one another anymore. Any, any more. Well, you know, we are short in the story. We're very early in the story of social media. Um, you know, if we take the long view for a moment, we see that, you know, every three or four years, something else is coming along. And we know one of the things we definitely know is that social media users are dissatisfied with the platforms. So I do think there's a real opportunity. But I think what's lacking is social media platforms with intelligent kinds of design. We've almost totally ignored the design principles of social media. We've been content to allow platforms that were created to, for example, allow college students to rate each other's physical attractiveness, or in the case of Instagram, arrange, you know, alcohol-based gatherings to serve as the public forum for democracy in the 21st century. It's a crazy thing we're doing. Um, research, and I think research alone, can help us understand exactly how we should and can redesign social media um, from scratch. We've had a number of people, Chris, on the show not disagreeing with you, but they've done it generally in an abstract way. You've gone out and done it at your lab, and, and, and uh, you have uh, uh, a name for your platform. You call it Discuss It, and you can go out and look at it online. What is Discuss It, and why is it perhaps the solution to what's happening? Sure. You know, the problem here is that uh, research has been impeded by social media platforms. In the wake of things like Cambridge Analytica, um, Facebook in particular has really moved a lot of its research out of public view. And, and, and scholars like us who may want to experiment on, say, core design principles of social media simply can't do that now. And so what we decided to do was to create our own platform for scientific research. And this gave us full control over what happens on the platform, who interacts with who, and what the plat how the platform is designed. And even better, we can recruit um, and ethically, you know, recruit people to to participate in the study instead of, um, you know, doing it without their consent. And that was a big problem with some of the early studies. But anyways, um, you know, this is a real opportunity to bring evidence to bear on a debate that right now is highly speculative. You know, we've got self-interested tech leaders and self-interested politicians. Um, basically doing some mildly informed speculation. Um, but we think that this research is an opportunity to really uh, bring evidence to bear. Yeah, and uh, you, you, you talk about it as a, as a success story, uh, one of the few success stories, I'm quoting from the book, in fighting political polarization on our platforms. Seems to me that what you have done, which is different from a number of the other experiments with social media, is you've taken that, if you like, Nietzschean or Dostoevskyan reading of, of, hum, of human nature. We're not generous. We're not na naturally empathetic. We seek power. And what you're doing with Discuss It is rewarding people for being tolerant. So I'm quoting you here. You say, imagine if we created a platform on which status was tied to a more noble purpose. So you're giving status to toleration. Is that fair? 
Well, that's what we'd like to see happen. So just to clarify, Discuss It is not a platform that's public that your, your viewers can go try now. We hope to get there. Uh, we hope to get the funding to build such a platform. But right now... It exists now, online. I mean, there, 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 there is a website called Discuss It. Uh, unfortunately, that's someone else's website. Ah. That, that's not ours. Yeah. We use the term Discuss It just to explain in order to not just recruit people who were interested in changing their minds. Imagine if we had called our app, you know, the anti-echo chamber. What type of people would use that app? Well, it would only be people who were predisposed to changing their minds. And so what we wanted to do was recruit a much broader sample of people. Um, and we told them they were going to help us test a new social media platform called Discuss It. Um, and we were able to survey them before, during, and after that experience and discover kind of some of the secrets of, of depolarization. So you say that the Twitters and Facebooks of the world uh, could optimize the order of posts, I'm quoting you again, in their users' timelines based, of, uh, based on the amount of approval they generate. In other words, uh, and again, I'm quoting you, you could create new incentives to, for people to engage in such productive debate. Uh, for example, leaderboards that track how often prominent users generate content that appeals to people from both parties. I like that idea. And it seems as if social media at the moment rewards obnoxiousness, rewards characters from the underground. And what we got to figure out is how to reward the other side. Is that fair, Chris? Exactly, exactly. You know, technology at its greatest um, could really help us optimize for democracy, right? What better tool than a tool that helps us filter through all the, you know, the blooming, buzzing, uh, buzzing confusion that we see in our social media feeds every day and picks out all the stuff for us, not that, you know, our friends liked or our, our, our side liked, but really a broad set of society liked. It could really begin to bring us back together. And so what we've done in the Duke Polarization Lab is designed essentially at a prototype of this. If your audience goes to polarizationlab.com, they can check out the bipartisanship leaderboard that you just mentioned that includes politicians, journalists, and others who our research indicates are actually resonating across both parties. Are uh, the characters in mind you can think of who are bipartisan and not boring? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, one of my favorites is uh, Michael Barbaro, the, the the host of the New York Times podcast, The Daily. You know, um, I would have thought, you know, given the the liberal reputation of the Times, that that he would be um, he wouldn't be on that list. But he seems to have discovered some of the secret sauce. So, Chris, if we break the prism, what metaphor would we use? Does social media be a window? Is that the opposite of a prism? More like a mirror. I mean, you know, earlier you said you're a little skeptical about like stopping people like Ray, that that really hardcore extremist, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character I was talking about earlier. And I actually agree with you about that. I don't think we're going to get much leverage in trying to persuade extremists to be less extreme. In fact, if our research is right, that might only make them more extreme. But that does not mean that the rest of us can't learn to avoid people like Ray. So on polarizationlab.com, you can try out our trollometer tool, which allows you to input characteristics of a social media user's account and monitor the language that they use in order to derive a prediction of the probability that that person is an extremist who may be just not worth, worth engaging. Um, similarly, you can learn about how the social media prism refracts you. You can learn about how your political views place you on an ideological continuum ranging from extremist to moderate, both online, on Twitter, uh, we use a machine learning model to, to develop a, a prediction of your ideology, but also offline. 
And it helps you become aware of the gap between who you are offline and what your social media posts make you look like to other people. And that's the power of the social media prism right there. Chris, was it a coincidence that writers like Nietzsche and Dostoevsky were writing about the will to power and angry men at a time of early industrialization when society seemed to be breaking up? We're living in similar times now in the post-industrial age of increasingly dramatic inequality of the impact of AI on work, on enormous disparities in wealth and power. In other words, isn't the anger on the internet or some of the anger of characters like Ray, it's not a, a form of insanity. It actually reflects reality. Absolutely. I mean, too many people want to ask the following question. Is social media responsible for political polarization? And I think that's a really hard question to answer, A. But B, we know that political polarization was surging long before social media. You already highlighted some of the factors driving this process, <clears throat> inequality, but also you know, the rise of, of cable news and you know, market incentives for outrage, um, divisive leaders in the 1990s, maybe even the fall of the Soviet Union, which might have provided a common threat that you know, held polarization at bay. There are a number of different factors that led to the current solution, to the current situation. And so I think you know, asking that question, is social media to blame, presumes that we really have the choice of leaving social media. And of course we do. Um, but my concern is if the people who are thoughtful and reflective enough to worry about what social media is doing us leave, then who's going to remain on social media? And as long as most people do remain on social media, and by the way, uh, those trends continue to suggest that social media is only going to continue to grow. The delete Facebook movement, for example, seems to have fizzled out so quickly that the top Google search about two weeks after, or a top Google search several weeks after delete Facebook trended was how to undelete your Facebook account. So, you know, we really need to be practical here. Um, we're going to see um, social media continue to grow and uh, we need practical solutions um, and we need moderates uh, to speak up more. We need, I think we need the moderates to stay on the platforms and, and better yet, build new platforms. So don't leave, Chris Bale says. Finally, Chris, we began with these hearings in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago of the executives, the senior executives from, from YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Um, if you were one of those congressmen, what would you be suggesting? What is the, the best policy that American government can do to help reform social media? I think we need transparency. You know, a lot of these uh, firms have made public commitments to transparency, but really not followed them. And so, for example, you know, we want to know how algorithms are driving things like radicalization and polarization, um, but we simply don't have the data. And this is not for lack of research. The research is locked inside companies and, and we're simply not seeing it. So I think we need a kind of an audit. We need a, a public data set, maybe even supported by the government that would allow us to really measure these things with scientific precision and proceed from a place of knowledge instead of speculation. Well said from one of social media's most um, erudite social scientists. Uh, this book, Breaking the Social Media Prism by Chris Bale, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing, is essential reading for many of us who are concerned with the impact of social media on civility and democracy. Uh, Chris, I know you are in your office uh, at Duke University in North Carolina. Uh, no, see, that's the power of the prism. This is my home. So, yeah. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> home and office, they seem to be. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. One in, 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 one in, in, the, in same. the age yeah. of COVID. But um, <laughs> you're stuck inside. I'm in San Francisco, California. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book? Yeah, sure. You know, I would love for people to learn more about the field that I'm really excited about um, helping to create, which is called computational social science. And, um, you know, one of my favorite books out there right now is this book, Bit by Bit, uh, by my colleague, Matt Salganik. And, um, you know, it's really an invitation to think about how social science can really, and, and data science together, can really hack uh, many of the problems that we have out there. You know, I think the COVID example is a really, uh, the COVID crisis is a really nice example. Um, you know, data science alone is not gonna ha is not gonna solve the problem. Social science alone is not gonna solve the problem. We need hybrid approaches, a kind of computational social science to solve these problems. Well, bit by bit, Chris, we're gonna fix social media. Your book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, I think will help. Pleasure, honor to have you on the show. I'm pleased that the- Thanks gremlins that interfered with our interview this morning have not reappeared Indeed. and hopefully Indeed. people will see this interview in its entirety without any technical blemishes chris honor to have you on the show keep well good luck and we'll have you back again to see if uh initiatives like uh discuss it are actually reforming social media thank you so much thank you andrew it's really a pleasure to be on thanks